0: Father, we are grateful that you have blessed us beyond our ability to even enumerate. We know that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness (coughs) or shadow of turning, a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And thus, as we study these passages of the Old Testament, we know that you're the same God of the New Testament and the same God of our lives today and Lord that you have revealed to us your plan and your program and we're grateful that it is something that is important to us and that you have made us a part of it. And Now Lord we ask for your special blessing upon us this hour. Give us understanding and insight through the power of your Spirit. And then Father we also ask that again you will minister today in every one of the Sunday School classes that is meeting from the youngest of children to Adult classes and in the service, which is, is being uh, maintained uh, concurrently. And we pray that you will be present in all of this and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. This, this shows the entire courtyard here with the linen curtain that goes around, and you can see the tie lines that uh, held the curtain posts up. Uh, in this particular case, as you see here, this is the 75 foot width of the temple, of the tabernacle complex. This is the 150 foot length here, going by the standard interpretation of the cubit. We're given the dimensions uh, in cubits, of course. And what you see are the tops of the posts here, which are all in silver. The Bible tells us that the capstones were in silver. The columns themselves were seven and a half feet high, made up of acacia wood. Now, in this case, he has interpreted them as having been uh, sheeted in bronze, which is very possible, although the scripture doesn't say that specifically. It talks about bronze hooks being on them, uh, silver hooks actually being on them to hold the uh, the curtain line, and it also talks about the bronze footing into which the posts were placed. But it would it would be very fitting if it were if they were all sheeted in bronze. And this, of course, is the, the tabernacle yard. This is the entrance way down here. This is the east, always facing towards the rising sun. The entrance way faced to the east, and then the curtain into the tabernacle also faced in the same direction, and they were lined up here together. Now he has interpreted that the entrance curtain here and that the first veil into the tabernacle also had the cherubim motif. Now, the scripture does not say that. It only specifically says cherubim motif for the inner veil here, but he has interpreted that it was there also. But it does say that the uh, scarlet to the blue and the purple embroidery was on this curtain and on this curtain as well. So the three curtains had that scarlet embroidery there as you would come into the the tabernacle yard here the first thing you would come to is the great bronze altar which we talked about a week or so ago and he's interpreted the the scripture always talks about the horns of the altar and that's always been a little bit of a question to many Uh, he's interpreted here as having literally like a a big horn sticking up on the corner and and it's probably fairly accurate because stone altars that have survived from the ancient world often have these horns on the corner. And so that may be the interpretation here. The priest would come up and he would make the sacrifice here on the uh, brazen altar, uh, sacrifices for the people of Israel, the many different sacrifices which are described there. This particular feature we have not talked about yet because we haven't come to that passage in Scripture. This is the the laver The place where ablution would take place, ceremonial uh, cleansing would take place uh, by the priests before they would go into the tabernacle and before they would make the offering and after they would make the offering. Now the Scripture gives us absolutely nothing about this. It doesn't tell its size, it doesn't tell its shape, it doesn't tell how it was transported. We, we know later when Solomon's temple was made, we know about the size of it and, and what it looked like then, but there's no description given of it. It just says there is a laver here outside of the tabernacle entrance for this uh, ceremonial washing to take place. This is the first veil that we went through. Now he's interpreted it as the the posts being actually in line across there in front of the veil, which is very possible that way or it could be, as, as some have interpreted, that the posts were reinforced at the corners, uh, giving a chance for it to be a free-swinging curtain. Uh, but uh, either way, that's the entranceway. Inside, you find the menorah on the one side and the table of the showbread on the other side. Uh, the, they were on opposite sides facing each other. Here, he has interpreted what goes along with the King James Version understanding of the tabernacle, and that is that it, it talks about boards, the tabernacle being made up of boards, and so he has interpreted it as being solid boards. Most of the modern scholars today uh, do as I suggested that uh, it was made up of kind of a lattice work, sort of like long ladders, so that you could see the inside of the veil, uh, the, that is the covering of the tabernacle, which was in this beautiful motif of multicolors and cherubim and so forth but uh, th- those were all the way around. And you'll notice the tie lines here, which Scripture doesn't specifically mention, but infers to maintain the standing of the tabernacle in, out in the wilderness, often winds would blow and, and this was important for that. He does not portray, however, inside, and I don't know why, the, um, the uh, long rods, which were used to keep the, the whole thing as a unit. Uh, rods were stretched from one end to the other of this, five of them, one near the top, one the bottom, and three in between, to, to keep this, the walls together as a single unit. And the scripture, remember, said that they were made of acacia wood and that they were covered with solid gold. I mean, they were covered with gold. And that uh, one of them at least had to extend the full length. The others could be in smaller pieces, but the one had to extend the full length. In here, two thirds of the way back, uh, well, if you remember, this is 15 feet wide, 45 feet long and uh, 15 feet high. Right here, two thirds of the way back is the, the inner veil, uh, the veil into the Holy of Holies, which was this little 15 by 15 foot cubicle. Actually it was a cube, 15 by 15 by 15, uh, back here in which the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was located. And remember, it was very, very small. Just before you went through that curtain in there, though, was another feature we haven't talked about yet because it's not until the 31st chapter of Exodus, but that's the altar of incense. The altar of incense where incense was burned, and incense in Scripture is symbolic of the prayer of the prayers of the saints. And this little, this is a very small altar. It's only a cubit by a cubit and a couple of cubits tall. So it's about a foot and a half by a foot and a half and so tall, because only incense was burned on there, so it, well, it didn't need to be very large. But uh, these, so you'll notice the furnishings, one, two, three, four, only four objects inside the tabernacle and two on the outside in the tabernacle compound. This is a representation of the high priest here. He says on here that he's he got this little uh, man figure, at five foot 10. <laughs> so uh, it gives you kind of a scale for what everything is, about an average sized person. Of course, in those days, probably taller than average but you get the kind of the scale it would be to, human, to a human being. Yes, any questions? Okay, would, would the roof be flat across or would it be like a tent? It was a tent. The, all of the coverings have been stripped off of here. The, there were four layers over the tabernacle itself. You remember the inner? No, no, it wasn't peaked. It would have been flat across. There's no indication that it was peaked anyway. Apparently, it was flat across. It would have been flat across the top or reasonably so obviously the weight of it would would dip in a little bit, but 15 feet high it's not going to interfere with anything. But the three layers that were stretched over this are not shown because you couldn't see the interior obviously if they were on there, four layers actually. There was an inner layer that was the same as, as the curtains here, same color, same motif and that was what would be seen on the inside of the tabernacle on the ceiling and through the lattice work on the sides. And then over the top were put the goat hair, uh, the ram skin, and the dugon or kind of like sea mammal skin that would be waterproof on the outside, which would protect this whole thing from storms when the rains would come. The description of the five panels and five panels and then the covering of one of those five and six, it doesn't say anything about what was the back, back uh, curtain of the, of the tabernacle. Was it the top curtains hanging down the back that did that? Yeah, it says in there that there's one or two places where it mentions the fact that the curtain was to overlap on the back side and hang down to the ground. Overlapping on the front and then hanging down the other half on the back, but it doesn't say anything about what that back panel itself was. You, You mean what this part here is? Yeah. Well, the interpretation is that it was made up of the lattice work also. So that this thing had lattice work on three sides, and then just at the most three posts yeah. that, that held up the uh, entranceway on the front. That's that's the interpretation. So much of this is, um, I mean, this is is pretty close to the general interpretation today, even of what it was like. But as I said before, the specific details are not given. So that if you or I were to try to go out there and actually rebuild the thing. <laughs> There'd be a lot of information lacking that... Uh, God said, use the plan that he gave Moses up on the mountain. Right. And the scripture makes it clear that he inspired the artisans who actually wove the cloth and did other things in, in the making of it so that they were able to do it the way God wanted it done. So, But I think this is close enough of a rendition that we get a pretty good idea of what the whole thing looked like. Jerry? Don, you made the point that this was somewhat portable or able to be transported and so forth. Who assembled it? And at what point in its assembly did the Holy of Holies become off limits? Uh, The Holy of Holies apparently became, well, first of all, the assembly and the disassembly was done by the Levites. They were consecrated for this task. And that was their job. Their job was to take it down, put it away. He says on here, that uh, the whole thing, with exception of these things that were carried with poles, would be transported on probably six ox carts. It, it was done. I mean, later on we're going to discover that the tribe of Levi had twenty-two thousand males in it, of between twenty and and sixty or so. So there was plenty of manpower to do this, and so they could take this whole thing down in each i 'm sure that each group of Levites they probably broke them down in little squads, and you know these the one squad did these posts and this amount of the curtain, you know another squad did this, so that each knew exactly what to do, so they could take it down and put it up in a f- in fairly rapid order. Uh, the main thing of course would be finding a nice flat area to put to assemble it so that the the this tent wall doesn 't go like this over the landscape, you know. <laughs> And then, of course, when, when it came to the, the assembly of all of this, the, the, Holy, uh, the, the um, Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be carried by the Levites on poles. And, so, and the poles were even left in the, in the rings. So they, at whatever point they assembled this, I would say before, of course, they probably hung the second veil, uh, they would position that, and then when the veil was hung, it would then become off-limits. And all of these things had to be placed, too. And then when the first veil was hung, then obviously nobody but the priests were able now to move into this part, and then the high priest once a year into, into that part. Any other questions or insights? So just the, just the two parts were covered. The rest of the temple or, or the, the outer yard or something was not covered at all? Right, it was open. Gate- Right, it was just like you see it here. So you had the four coverings hanging over this, from this edge over to the ground in the back. You had the four coverings. The inner covering, the scripture tells us, fell to within about a half a cubit of the ground. So the inner covering didn't quite reach the ground. The outer coverings actually reached the ground. So the other three coverings on, on the three sides reached the ground. The, the ninth chapter of Hebrews opens with a rather detailed description of the holy place. That's uh, yeah, what you've been showing it. Yeah. Ninth chapter of Hebrews, right, is a very good New Testament scripture to look at in, in looking and in describing this part in here. Carol? So, as I understand it from what you've been saying, the ark disappeared well before they stopped doing their yearly sacrificing. And didn't the priest go in and sprinkle the blood on the Ark so when it was gone for those years before they kept where what did he sprinkle the blood on Or does it matter? Yeah, well, as far as we know, there's some debate about this, of course. As far as we know, most likely, the Ark disappeared in 586, 587, when Nebuchadnezzar finally leveled the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the Solomonic temple. Uh, At that point, the Jews were, I mean, they were in the process over three different encounters with Nebuchadnezzar of being carried off into captivity. And when you read the accounts there of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, for example, in, in connection with the historical books, you find that Daniel, then Ezekiel, then Jeremiah, well, Daniel and Ezekiel were carried off into captivity two separate times. Jeremiah fled, well, not willingly, but was drugged away by the Jews in 587 because he had told them they were not to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. They, therefore, uh, they were not to go to Egypt specifically. They were to remain behind if they did. And they drug him off down to Egypt where apparently he ultimately died. But uh, when the Jews were carried off into Babylonian captivity, it was at that point that the sacrifices ceased. So unless the Ark did disappear earlier, the secession of the sacrifices and the disappearance of the Ark are concurrent. That's when synagogue worship began. They developed the concept of the synagogue, apparently both in Palestine and Babylonia, uh, about the same time during the time of the captivity. And so when they did come back, they did reconstruct the temple, Zerubbabel's temple, which was later reworked, remodeled into Herod's temple. Uh, That's all called the second temple. But they maintained synagogue worship at the same time after that. And the question is, what did they do inside the, the temple? Because they didn't have an ark they wouldn't have been able really to do at least the sacrifices of Yom Kippur. They could still carry on sacrifices on, on a brazen altar if they wanted. Uh, but, and apparently, you know, that was done some. But with the destruction of Herod's temple in A.D. 70, there has been no attempts of any kind of sacrifice, at least that, I, that I'm aware of, uh, by the Jews. Well, they must have been doing sacrifices during Jesus' time, right? Because they were right. selling the <laughs> clothes and whatnot. Right. But not as far as, you know, putting blood on, on the Ark, but on the brazen altar. The sacrifices were offered on that outer, yeah. Yeah, out here. Outdoors. In the courtyard, right. Not inside the temple itself. Is there any uh, validity to uh, the documentaries that are out now that the Ark of the Covenant is in captivity someplace and they're waiting for the well, that's what many of those who are really concerned Jews, who really believe that uh, you know they are going to be able to start their worship again. That's what they believe, and there are some who really think that's a possibility. Some think that when the tabernacle, the temple, was threatened by Nebuchadnezzar with destruction, that. The Ark of the Covenant was actually secreted away and put someplace. Some say it was buried down underneath the temple complex somewhere in in one of the many caves that's under there, or quarries. Others say that it was carried off and was put into uh, some cave in in the Jordan Valley, sort of like the Dead Sea Scrolls were. Others uh, think it was carried off to, to Mount Sinai and put in some cave there. Uh, some say that Jeremiah was responsible for carrying it off and having it uh, hidden someplace. So, yes, there are those who believe it's hidden someplace. Can you tell more about Herod's temple? I mean, after Solomon's temple was destroyed and why Herod built it and what the purpose was? That's what was there when Jesus died the curtain. Right. When the Jews came back from captivity, they had been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They were released by the Persian king Cyrus, and they came back to around the year, oh, well, late in the 6th century before Christ. They'd, they'd been in captivity more or less 70 years, uh, depending on when you started. The earliest captivity would have been in 606, and 70 years from that would have been 536. Along in that period, they began construction of the uh, temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And they rebuilt the temple. We do not know what it looked like, Uh, All we know is that those who came back from captivity who remembered Solomon's temple wept when they saw Zerubbabel's temple, that it was so small and unimpressive in comparison to Solomon's temple. What happened after that, there's very little evidence to indicate. We don't even know, for example, was Zerubbabel's temple torn down for Herod to build his temple, or did he just remodel Zerubbabel's temple? Did he incorporate it within the new temple? That isn't really known. All we know is that uh, before the time that Christ was born, uh, Herod began construction of a new temple there in Jerusalem, which is considered to be just a modification of Zerubbabel's, therefore it's still called the second temple complex. He did this in order to ingratiate himself with the Jews. Herod the Great was, he was Edomite and Jew. (laughs) part Edomite, part Jew. And so to try to incre- ingratiate himself with the Jews, he had this big, glorious temple built. And that was the temple that was under construction for a very long period of time, what, two decades or, or more under construction, or even longer, wasn't it? It was a very long time under yeah, construction. When Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, they say 40, I don't know, how many years, 40. Some years. Right, right. Made, that would go back to about 20 BC. Yeah. So it had been under construction for a long time. And that temple was a temple that was torn apart and destroyed, leveled by the Romans in AD 70 under the leadership of Titus, who was the son of the emperor at that time, Vespasian. And uh, he's the one responsible for that. And, and we know from Titus's column, which is in Rome, Titus's column actually portrays some of the things that were in the triumph of Titus when he came back to Rome. Rome, whenever a Roman commander had a victory, they brought all the goodies along and they paraded them through the middle of Rome in what was called a triumph. And in his triumph, we see some of the implements that were in the in Herod's temple. And the only one that's really obvious is the menorah. But there is no ark displayed in that carving on those columns, on that column. Any other question about the tabernacle? Yes. Was it true that they tied a rope onto the high priest's leg so that in case he died that they could pull him out? Well, the scripture doesn't say that, that I know of. Yeah, the rabbinic scholars say that. As we're going to be seeing here, one of the garments worn, worn by the high priest had bells on it. And with those bells, of course, his movement inside could be heard. <laughs> if the bells didn't tinkle anymore, then they could know things didn't go so well. <laughs> Any, anybody else with a, with a question? You're welcome afterwards, if you want to, to come up and look at this. It's very nicely done, and it's, uh, it's done to scale. So the height and the width and the length and all of this is basically in, in scale. And scale to a human being. The only thing, as I said before, that we don't know for sure is this, this the labor here. Did it really look like that? Well, you know, that's one person's interpretation. When Solomon built his labor, we, we're told how big it was, we're told what the base looked like, and how thick the metal was, and all kinds of other things, but we're not told that about this. Let's read, if we may, the uh, 28th chapter of Exodus, beginning with the first five verses. At the end of class last time, we read this passage to kind of get our thinking in the direction that it should go. What we're talking about here in the 28th chapter is the the establishment of the priesthood and particularly the garments that were to be worn by the priest and most specifically the high priest. Exodus 28 beginning at verse 1. Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel, to minister as priest to me, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, and that he may minister as priest to me. And these are the garments which they shall make a breastpiece and an ephod and a robe and a tunic of checkered work a turban and a sash and they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons that he may minister as priest to me and they shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen let's just look at that uh, briefly here for a moment God gives to Moses very specific directions here as to how the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, the the great priest as the term is here, uh, was to be arrayed. Moses was God's anointed and appointed leader of Israel. He was the prophet of Israel at that particular time. And so it was he who was authorized to do all of this. You know, someone had to be in charge, someone had to have the authority, the anointing from on high to to begin this whole sacerdotal program, this this priestly, uh, ceremonial worship. And so God authorized Moses to set apart his own brother, Aaron was his elder brother. He set him apart to be the first high priest of Israel and along with him were to be his four sons. And, and they were to be priests unto God, with Aaron as the high priest. And then, as when Aaron would die, the high priest would, would become, uh, as one of Aaron's sons, would become the high priest in his place. And so it would st- was to be for the eons that were to follow. Now, it's very interesting. The Scripture makes it very clear the succession here. And let me just uh, read a passage from uh, Numbers chapter 20, which shows the very first step in the succession. In Numbers chapter 20, in verse 27, we read these words So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And after Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eliezer, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. So we have during Moses' lifetime the first transition of power from Aaron as high priest to Eliezer, who becomes the high priest in his stead. If you read through the passages of the Old Testament, you'll find that probably Eliezer was the the finest high priest in in almost in Israelite history. Many, many good things are said about Eliezer uh, in Scripture. Now, the high priest, as we read in this passage, was to be clothed in garments of glory and beauty. Garments of glory and beauty. He was the one who stood as mediator between God and Israel. He stood in that interim position to mediate for Israel. That was the position of the high priest. And so he was to be arrayed in such a way that set him apart from the commonality of life. He wasn't to walk into God's presence dressed just as as he might be in ordinary daily activity. He was to be dressed in this special garment. Now, the special garment didn't make him holy. It's really important that we, I'm sure we understand this, but that we remind ourselves that this is true because there's so much in religion today and and in history where objects have some kind of special holiness to them which we have to therefore, you know, submit to, touch, or, you know, it's like people who rub Buddha's belly or Santa's nose or whatever it is and expect that some goodness is going to come to them from that. The garments did not make Aaron holy in the sense of righteousness. They made him holy in the sense of set-apartness. He was set apart from the others, even from the priests themselves, to be the high priest. And, And these garments designated him in in that position. So it was God's choice to do this. And so this is being done in obedience to what God chose to be the program, the plan here. And in some way, dressed as he was, he would reflect in a very, very tiny way the beauty and the glory of God. I think sometimes we have a tendency to forget that God is beautiful. God is glorious. God is wondrous. God is truly the only awesome one. God is so holy and, and, and different from who we are that we, in the sense that he is, Jesus has become our brother, he has become a friend, all of these things, we, we tend to forget who God is. And, and sometimes we tend to pal around with God rather than, than bowing in, in awe before him. And I think as we do that, we, we tend to let some other things slip in life. I think there's been a, a tendency in, in many circles to move away from theology. But how do you know who God is without theology? You know? Theology is who God is. And, and if we don't study who He is, how in the world do we know who we're worshiping and how we ought to behave and, and how we ought to uh, hold Him in, in great uh, awe? And, you know, one day when we stand before Him, uh, you know, Scripture says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I don't think it's going to be some trite little thing. I think it's going to be just a solemn thing where every individual is smitten to the depth of his or her heart with who Jesus Christ is. And it's going to be just a wondrous thing to, to partake in and to behold. And I think we need to look that way even now. I think our attitude towards life changes as our attitude towards God changes. And uh, we become a little less trite uh, about things, I think, uh, when we really understand who God is. We're, We're told in this passage that God would give skilled craftsmen special insight as to how to do all of this. Now, specifically right now, we're talking about the garments here of the high priest. But God gave to this craftsman special skill and insight to do all of this. I mean, we have to remember, we're talking about a bunch of Bedouins living in the desert. We're not talking about people who were, who were skilled and trained in, in the Egyptian technological schools for weaving and for gold hammering and for all the rest of this stuff. They had to be given special insight by God to do the job. And I think when they were done, they looked at that and they said, Did I do this? You know, I was just amazed at what they were able to do because God enabled them to do it. Spirit of wisdom. We all desperately need a spirit of wisdom just to live life in the way God wants us to live it. From verse 4 of this passage, we discover that the priest's clothing was to consist of six parts, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a tunic, a turban, and a sash. And then we'll find out a little later from from Josephus that there also was some underwear involved here too. But let's look at uh, verse 6 here and uh, read the next little section from verse 6 to verse 14. They shall also make the ephod of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet material Fine twisted linen, the work of a skillful workman. It shall also have two shoulder pieces joined to its two ends, that it may be joined. And the skillful woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship, of the same material, of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. And you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. And you shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. And you shall make filigree settings of gold and two chains of pure gold, and sh- you shall make them of twisted cordage work, and you shall put the cordage- corded chains on the filigree settings." Well, of course, a jeweler would probably be able to read this with greater insight and, and get some kind of an idea of how all of this gold work uh, fit together here. but. Here we have a description of what's called the ephod. It, it seems to have been made basically of the same material that was used to make the inner curtain of the tabernacle. It was purple, scarlet, and blue material twisted into the linen. But the difference was, there's, again, there's no mention of, of cherubim motif here, but there is mention of gold threads worked in here. So now you have gold threads worked in with the blue, the purple, and the scarlet into this cream-colored linen. So you could kind of just visualize all of this, you know, this, this basic w- linen garment with, with threads of blue, scarlet, and purple, and gold all woven through the material. It would have been a very beautiful garment. Well, I'm just curious, where's all this material coming from? they are vitamin mm-hmm. and the jewels Well... The, the jewelry, the gold, and the rest of it, and, and probably the linen, too, uh, was brought with them out of Egypt, because um, it's been a long time since we talked about this, but back when the children of Israel left Egypt, the, God had told them to, everyone, ask his neighbor for all these good things, and the Egyptians were so wanting them to go that they gave them anything they wanted. And it says specifically gold and silver and other kinds of things. So uh, the jewelry, all of this stuff apparently was acquired at this time. Uh, It's also possible they picked up some of it when they defeated the Amalekites. Uh, They defeated an Amalekite army and probably ravaged the tents and and took everything that was useful. And so they may have picked up more stuff at that point too. So did the the Israelis when they were in Egypt only have farming skills? When they're in Egypt, yeah, all right. One of their big skills was making of bricks. (laughs) And no, there probably were Hebrews that had had some training in metallurgy and in weaving and so forth. That, you know, that's a possibility. The scripture is very silent about that. So we would just have to surmise that as slaves in Egypt, they may have been occupied in other things than bricklaying and farming. They may have, which would have given them possibly the basic skill. And then God could ha- would then have inspired them to the skill that he wanted them to be able to, to do here. And it, it's the same way with uh, when, they, when they fought the Amalekites, where did they get the skill to, to fight? Because certainly none of them had been soldiers before. Maybe soldiering in those days wasn't as complex. You know, just get out there and stab the next guy. But the chances of you being stabbed by a professional would probably be a lot greater than you're stabbing him. So there's a lot of things having to do with the Israelite exodus here, which aren't spelled out per se, uh, as you read through here. So we we can surmise a lot of things. I, I personally do believe that there were some of the Israelites who had already done some gold working, probably, weaving, probably. And they're the ones that were chosen, and then God gave them the special skill to to do this kind of work. We know the Egyptians had very fine gold working skills, because the stuff that comes out of ancient Egypt is absolutely fabulous. And of course, Egypt was the the great center of gold of the ancient world. I mean, they had more gold mines under their control than anybody else. They were the gold-rich country of, of, of the ancient world. So when the Israelites left with gold, I think they left with quite a bit of it. <laughs> of course, when you spread it out over a couple of million people, why you can a couple million people can carry off a lot of gold. <laughs> the form of this garment here called the ephod has been highly debated down through time. It, it apparently was some kind of a vest or possibly a waistcoat. Not a coat as you would think of with, with lapels and all that kind of thing, but I don't know, it's kind of almost like an apron that you would step into and, and then the two straps come up the two sides and were fastened here on the shoulder. Uh, to hold it in place. It had no arms, no sleeves in it I should say, and, and that it hung down, oh, say, about arm's length down here on the body. And that's where these two onyx stones come in here. Now most of us are familiar with onyx. Onyx is a variety of chalcedony, which is a quartz uh, mineral. And onyx can come in many different colors, all the way from white to black, but we're most accustomed to it in its black form. Whether this was black or not, we don't know, but just by the use of the term onyx, that's what what normally comes to our minds. These two stones were right up here as clasps on on the top of the shoulders to fasten the two straps of the ephod that came up the front and the back of the garment. And what we're told here is that on these two stones were engraved the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Six on one stone, six on the other stone. It was the patriarchal name, you know, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, and so forth. And they were put on the stones in birth order. The interpretation is that the elder six would have been on the right shoulder and the the younger six would have been on the left shoulder of the high priest. The stones, we're told, were then to be set in gold filigree with gold chains attached. So it was probably a fairly pretty um, piece of jewelry, I guess you could say. With, I mean, gold filigree around it and little gold chains hanging off of it right up here on the shoulder of the garment. So you can imagine when it was first put on, you know, this, this blue, uh, purple, scarlet, cream-colored linen with gold threads woven through it, uh, hanging on the body here with these uh, Jewels, uh, these uh, pieces of jewelry on the on the shoulders. It was it was a very beautiful a beautiful thing that the high priest uh, wore. But he wore much more, much more than that. The next passage. I think I'll read the passage again, like I did last time, to get our thinking going, and we'll go into the details of it uh, next week. But uh, this is an exquisite piece that was worn by the high priest, beginning at verse 15. You shall make a breast piece of judgment, the work of a skilled, work, skillful workman. Like the work of the ephod, you shall make it, of gold, of blue, of, and purple, and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and folded double, a span in length and a span in width span is about nine inches. And you shall mount on it four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, emerald. The second row, turquoise, sapphire, diamond. The third row, jacinth, agate, and amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. And the stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names. They shall be like the engravings of a seal, each accorded to his name for the twelve tribes. And you shall make on the breastpiece chains of twisted cordage work in pure gold. And you shall make on the breastpiece two rings of gold, and shall put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold on the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece. And you shall put the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings, and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. It's talking about how you connected this thing to the the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold, and shall place them on the two ends of the breastpiece, on the edge of it, which is toward the inner side of the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold, and put them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod, and on the front of it close to the place where it is joined, above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord, that it may be on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breast piece may not come loose from the ephod. And Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. So the most glorious piece that the high priest wore was this breastpiece. And next week we'll talk about that and uh, what it probably looked like, and of course it would have—I mean, it would have just glowed literally with the uh, gemstones uh, that were on it. But the symbolism is important here too as we look at it. So we'll we'll do that next Sunday.